Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 356th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sarah Catherine Gutierrez. Sarah Catherine is the founder of Aptus Financial, a fee-only financial planning firm based in Little Rock, Arkansas, that's approaching $2 million in revenue and works with over 480 client households. What's unique about Sarah Catherine, though, is that despite the common industry belief that the only way to build and scale a firm is through AUM, she has built a multi-advisor firm serving hundreds of clients while operating as a flat fee advice-only firm, which is expedited by Sarah Catherine's focus on building sustainable marketing systems so that her advisors aren't distracted by the time-consuming task of prospecting for clients and solely focus on the efficiency of delivering financial planning to existing clients instead. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, despite some of the false starts and initially problematic underpricing, Sarah Catherine intentionally built her financial planning fee to transparently communicate her value in the work that she does as an advisor while also pricing within a range for her originally accidental but now fully embraced niche of recently graduated physicians. How Sarah Catherine built a trust-based center of influence and referral system that's so strong that she no longer has to worry about where the next prospect will come from and how Sarah Catherine uses her onboarding process to convert ready-to-act from prospects to fully informed clients with action plans in only two calls. We also talk about why Sarah Catherine has segmented her planning fees by charging an initial upfront fee for the first year plan, decreasing to a lower year-over-year fee for ongoing service, coupled with a consistent additional end-of-year annual review fee. How the unique challenges of Sarah Catherine's niche clientele have caused her to build a completely custom financial planning spreadsheet to do their planning work efficiently. And how Sarah Catherine builds customized cash flow management plans for new physicians planning, uh, planning to understand their current financial situation and their trajectory towards early retirement. And be starting to listen to the end, where Sarah Catherine shares how, as a founder, she's learned to get comfortable simply leaning into her instincts, even when she can't fully back up a decision with numbers and finding her own compass for determining what will be best for clients and the company at large. How Sarah Catherine's determination to remain neutral in her marketing rather than salesy has ultimately opened up speaking opportunities and created new prospect pipelines. And why, despite the grueling intensity of deciding to scale her planning business with all the hiring and systems building it entailed, Sarah Catherine finds it all worthwhile now that she's on the other side with a healthy marketing system that means she's no longer worried about where the next new client comes from to cover her growing payroll obligation. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sarah Catherine Gutierrez. Welcome, Sarah Catherine Gutierrez, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, thanks so much. It's great to be here. I'm really excited about today's episode and getting to talk a little bit about scaling advisory firms and particularly scaling into the so-called advice-only model. I've been fascinated with kind of this emergence. We went from, well, like selling products or commissions in the old days. Then we started moving towards advisory fees like AUM model. Then we started kind of charging standalone fees for financial plans with hourly and the like, but a lot of advisors struggle to scale beyond that. We've seen some building towards subscription fees, but a lot of advisors in those fee models at some point have a tendency to add assets under management back in or back into the model 
because there just is a lot of economic robustness around. A lot of clients are willing to hand over dollars and it provides some stable, growing, recurring revenue. And so I know you have lived this world where you have built very sizable flat fee advice only model when I still hear a lot of advisors say like, okay, well, maybe you can make a good living at advice only, but you can quote unquote, never, never scale that beyond yourself. And so as someone who has and has now built <laughs> a multi-advisor firm in this kind of advice only model, just I'm really excited to understand what this looks like as you start building and scaling where you quote unquote, just charge advice fees and planning fees and are not going back to the asset management side of the business. That's right. I mean, it's a really exciting, I think, new, as, as you just pointed out, it's a new direction, I think, in financial planning. And, you know, we can absolutely talk about why it's so difficult to scale. But I always like to just kind of paint just the carrot here of like what you're looking at. I mean, imagine if you could be a financial planner and that's really what you're doing all day long and that's what our planners get to do there's there's no prospecting there's no um you know the kind of the asset aggregation pressure uh you know we literally just get to do financial planning all day long so I imagine people listening to this podcast probably highly correlates with financial planners, like very talented Mm -hmm. financial planners, if you're, you know, taking the time to really self-educate like this. And so I think there's a lot of really attractive reasons to think like, actually, you know, this, this could be a great thing for a lot of people to go into. So I think to, to kick off here, just tell us about the advisory firm as it exists today. Like just help get us oriented about what this advisory business looks like. Sure. Well, we've got two sides of the business and the side we're going to be, I guess, primarily discussing is on the financial planning side of the business. And on that side of the business, we have several financial planners and essentially we have clients who sign up for a very explicit process that we have that has come over many, many years of refinement and testing and seeing what's successful. Essentially, the majority of people go through a two-meeting process that gets the financial plan in place, and then they stay with us, kind of a pseudo-subscription, I think you could say, on what we call Aptis Care, where we're able to help people nudge them along to implement their financial plans And then we have an annual review, annual rebalancing that we do with our clients. And so each planner interviews their own client. So we have all incoming interest from folks. So we get about uh, one email a day from people who want to be clients of Aptis. And we distribute those out to our financial planners and they interview. And the interviews are actually two-way This advice-only model is not for everyone. We're really careful in our interviewing to make sure that this person or this couple is going to be right for us. If it's a good fit, basically right there in the interview, they schedule, a lot of people will just go ahead and schedule that first meeting, usually a couple months down the road, depending on how busy we are. It can be three or four months down the road to get that first meeting in place. 
And we have a whole onboarding kind of system that happens in the background. Of course, you know, compliance and all of that, but it's a pretty straightforward process. So a couple of questions that I've got here, getting perspective around this. So how many clients is it? So it's it's going to vary, right, by the day, because it's a pretty high volume business, uh, as you can imagine, with clients being advice only. So our trailing 12 month client counts 480, if that gives a good sense of 480 clients. Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. Is that who are in the ongoing subscription or that's who did like any kind of planning that could have been one time or ongoing? Well, we don't do one time. So they would be, so everybody kind of follows the same path. So yeah, it's people who are engaging in our services. Um, Yes. And so then how do, how do services price? Okay. So we have the majority of people come in with our comprehensive financial plan. And all of our, by the way, all of our pricing is on our website. So if any, anybody's listening here, you can go to aptusfinancial.com and you'll see a pricing page. And we are big on, on pricing transparency. We want people to absolutely know exactly what they will be paying if they work with us. So you can see that our comprehensive plan is $3,360. And then um, we ask that all of our clients the first year have our more robust, uh, we call it Aptus Care, but that that monthly servicing, because there's just a lot that usually needs to be implemented when people um, create, when we create the plan with our clients and then have a pr- pretty lengthy to-do list. And so that's $187 a month. And then from there, we have our clients every year pay for that review that I was talking about, and that is 1,120. Now, there are some people that come in and they are already very competent. We call them DIYers. They're just, they really know what they're doing. They're coming to us because they have a pretty explicit question and want to become a client. They really don't need that two meeting process. They really just have like one thing they're wrestling with. And so in these kind of a little bit rarer cases, we can do a limited review and, and the pricing is all there as well. So that's $1,680 with uh, a lower Aptus care of 93 a month. And then once folks come through with us and they're really competent and we are big on empowering and educating our clients so that they can take on more and more, many of our clients will say, I don't need quite as intense servicing through the year, or we'll suggest that they don't need quite as intense servicing in those subsequent years, and they can drop down to that lower level of Baptist care as well. All right. So a couple of questions I've got here. First, just 3,360, 187. These are like (laughs) remarkably precise prices. So I've got to ask, like, where do these numbers come from? Or how are you getting to a point that you price there? Just like I phone most advisors for better or worse, they're going to say like, the annual review is a thousand bucks or 1100 or 1200, not 1120. So (laughs) I'm assuming there's a method, there's a method to how we get there. There is. And our clients love us for this. So once we were able to strike what we thought was the right balance of pricing, which was what's good for the client and what is good for a really, really good financial planner, right? We have to imagine the kinds of financial planners that we are attracting. I mean, we want the best, right? So our clients understand that they're paying for really high quality financial planning. So once we 
found that sweet spot that we thought was right for the client, right for the planner. We have kept our blinders on to kind of sometimes what I would hear when I would go to industry conferences, which is, oh, you're running a wait list. You can't get in for four months. We need to raise your prices. We, we don't do that. We have kept our blinders on to that because we really have a target clientele that we want. And we think this is what they can afford. And we think it's fair pricing for them. Now, the precision in the pricing uh, is really because we have an inflation, inflation adjustment that we have all of our clients agree to. And so when we did that first inflation adjustment last year, obviously we had to do that. We sent a letter to our clients, let them know, and, and it was a very kind of precise adjustment that everybody had agreed to. So okay. um, and we didn't we didn't lose folks to it. But yes, it, it does make it kind of ho- seem hilariously precise, but that's okay. the long-winded reason. So once, once you start applying inflation adjustments, all the numbers start moving to not so round Correct. numbers. They used to be and, round and cute, but they're right, not right. anymore. And, and, then, and then you move off that as the inflation adjustments kick in. And our curiosity, trying to visualize how that works Upfront plans, like just the the new fee is the new inflation-adjusted fee. Annual review, I'm presuming the new fee is just the new inflation-adjusted fee. How did that work for ongoing clients as you did an uninflation adjustment? I mean, just practically, like, do you have to repaper everything with the new agreement? Is there like some clause in your advisory agreement that lets you bump up the fee? How do you actually mechanically do that? Yes, we have that in our agreement that we can apply this fee and we notify all of our clients of it. It it really is not a big deal. The pricing, I mean, I got to tell you, it has migrated. Do you know that I started this business? I was charging $45 an hour. $45 an hour. That's, yes, I was. That's the hourly rate. Yeah, I couldn't do math clearly. Math was not a strong suit. If you can bill all <laughs> 2,000 working hours a year and do absolutely nothing else, you can make $90,000. Uh, right. But as you understand, probably uh, that is not the way that works. It's and, a little bit hard to bill all 2,000 hours for the year. Yeah. <laughs> at some point, you have to find clients, which you have to find clients hard. and you have to, and there's the inefficiencies and, and uh-huh. you just can't account for all of those. And so I'm proud of that. I'm proud that we have explored every single price point you can possibly imagine from 45 to 75 to 100 to 120. I mean, we have explored them all. And so, you know, we've been around this price point for several years and it just feels so good to have finally hit that sweet spot that's good for the client, good for the planner. Is there an hourly equivalent that you target? I mean, are, are you a, like, we know it takes us this many hours to do the planning process, so multiply by a target fee, and that's how we get to our numbers? Like, is that part of your pricing approach? Yeah, it, it is. So it really is based on hours. And so, you know, we do assume in that comprehensive plan that, you know, it's going to be couple, you know, two, two hour meetings and eight hours of work. I mean, it is really very much our contemplated time, like our aptus care. We contemplate and we really hold ourselves accountable to our touch points with clients. And so, yes, it does have that. I, I mean, I don't like to call it hourly because I think sometimes people get really locked into that right. and, and, 
we did used to do hourly. And then people would be really focused on that. And they might even shortchange themselves in the financial planning process, like thinking about, oh, I can save money if we don't do X, Y, or Z. And then they can end up with a beautiful plan. But you know, who cares about a plan that's gathering dust? It's not getting implemented. We used to do one-time planning. You could just pay for a plan and then come back later. And again, we just thought, well, this is not satisfying at all. Our clients aren't, some of them would take action, but not all of them. And so that's when we kind of migrated to this system that, yes, it's based on the amount of work that we know it's going to take because we've done this so many times, right? And we've had over 800 clients come through. So yeah. um, we feel like we really know how this works and how long it takes. And that's how our planners, it's great for them because they're not having to wonder how they're going to make money. Uh, there aren't any inefficiencies in this process, right? Yes, you've got to interview, but that's nothing like having to prospect, right? If, if all you have to do is really interview however many people to get one client, it doesn't introduce a lot of those hourly inefficiencies. And so, yeah, it's a great model, I think, for the planner that just wants to be a planner, knows how many hours they have in a year. They know how many hours they want to work in a year, I should say, because not every planner wants to work a full-time schedule, right? And some planners want to work more than a full-time. So it, it is great for them to be able to kind of plan out essentially roughly what they're going to make in a year. So is there a particular hourly target that you were using as you built this out? Like is all this underlying, uh, ultimately we're trying to generate $150 of revenue per advisor hour or 200 or 300 or some number? Yeah, it's gone up. I mean, it's migrated. It's, you know, 150, 175, two th it's about 280 now. So that's kind okay. of where we've landed. Okay. So, and then I, I'm presuming then the whole, we have an upfront fee and then an ongoing fee and then a separate annual review fee just comes back to that. We really want our fees directly aligned to the services the clients are getting at the time. Because as I hear this, I'm like, well, instead of $187 a month and a $1,100 review fee, like you could have $287 a month and no annual review fee. Uh, I guess this, I'm curious here more of like why, why sort of the all the different fees as opposed to just kind of wrapping it into one, one subscription fee that's more stable and ongoing. You know, that, that would be so much easier and that's what we used to have, right? It's like easier to explain, yeah. easier to say, but we always go back to what we think is fair and right to the client. And we really just unbundled this in the last 12 months, like within the last 12 months. And we feel like it's the right direction. So maybe if I was on this, if I'm on this podcast in a year, we come back and say, oh, that didn't work. But we have been in this just journey. Yeah. Because there's really not, we don't really have a playbook in the advice only world, right? Like, right. you are we, one of the largest advice only firms out there. So there's not a lot right. of like, let's look at what the others are doing and just copy the standard best practice. Right. And so we're trying to strike this really good balance between 
Look, we don't want the clients overly thinking about the fees because we really want the clients thinking about their financial planning process. I mean, we feel so good about the fees and the clientele that we're working with, which we can discuss that as well. We feel like it's fair for the budgets of our clients. So we feel comfortable in that. We want our clients really laser focused on using us and getting this plan in place. No financial plan is any good unless it's activated, right? And so that is really what we're trying to do is help clients feel so comfortable that we are taking care of them and we are charging the right fee. We're charging it in a fair way that they can trust. And that trust is becomes a foundation, I think, of trusting our financial planning. So that's why I think it's working. And it's all on our website. So it feels, I think, good to the client that it's they know what to expect. And I think sometimes in the financial planning world, that's not always the case. And I'm just curious, if you were living bundled and decided to unbundle into this, was there some precipitating event, precipitating <laughs> moment that made you say, All right, we got to kill this bundled thing and split out the annual review separately? No, we literally decided. In fact, my partner was the one that realized this is the right thing to do. And I just, I thought as the person leading that part of the business, like think of like it did make things more complicated, right? But that's just, he was just wrestling with it. And we meet every Friday and talk. And he just was coming back and saying, this just doesn't feel right. This just doesn't feel right. We should be charging explicitly for the annual rebalancing, the annual review. And that's, and it just, when he did it, it just felt good. I don't know how else to, sometimes you make business decisions and you're like, I don't know necessarily. <laughs> yeah. It just feel, it just feels right. Like yes. I feel it in my gut. And sometimes you just have to do that from the entrepreneur end. Cause yes. so we joke sometimes, like if you always did it based on the math and the spreadsheet, you would never go launch a business. Like, nobody, nobody, nobody launched a business if you actually do the math of like the probability of failure and all the things that go with starting a business. Yeah, there's a whole thing of building a business that relies on a certain amount of I'm just going with my gutness to it. Yes, that's right. So then what is this add up to from a, a revenue perspective for the firm overall? Yeah. So, you know, it's a constantly changing number and it's an excitingly changing number. Well, I hope we're going to talk about how this is not all unicorns and rainbows, yes. but it, it feels that way right now. We're an extremely exciting period of the practice where it doesn't feel as hard. It feels like it's flowing well. We have the financial planners that we are attracting are just incredible. So it's great. You know, we're excited to hopefully soon hit that $2 million mark wow. um, in revenue. I never knew what to expect, you know, when I started the company in 2011, but it certainly wasn't this. Yeah. Closing in on 2 million of revenue is a big number in an advice only world. So yes, I mean, we're not there. I mean, we've, we're probably a year away, but that's where we're hoping to get to. So then what does this look like from a a team staff perspective, like how is how many on the total team, and then how many are actually advisors doing all this planning work for four hundred eighty 
trailing clients plus new ones coming in? Yeah, so that's, that's about seven. And I say about because there's a couple planners in there that have a dual role. So my okay. partner, Tim, sees clients, but really takes on this compliance CFO role as well. We have another planner that works with me closely, Stephanie, and she works with me on the retirement plan side, financial wellness, student loan. She's also a student loan expert. And so she's kind of part-time planner, part-time financial wellness, that kind of side of the business. And so we have the rest are doing full-time financial planning. Okay. So if I Think about that from client base overall, like you end out in this like 70 to 100 clients per advisor doing all the ongoing work supporting those clients. Like am I thinking yeah. about that in the right neighborhood? Yes. And so not every client, every planner is going to take on a full load. So, you know, right, because they've got some splits, right? Or they just don't want to, they want to have like more work-life balance, that kind of thing. That's what I love about this is that people can decide that they don't want to work, you know, a traditional 40 hour week. So, yeah. So we, I think our planners can take on more if they want and still be doable, get into that maybe 120 clients. And I guess revenue-wise, like an ongoing client, $187 a month ongoing is about $2,200 a year. Then you get $1,100 review fee as well. So like a client is about $3,300. Like an, a fully engaged ongoing client is about $3,300 a year. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, that's right. No, and then it'll drop down, right? So then it'll drop to that 93 a month. Now, some people want to stay at that higher level. I think in preparing for this interview with you, we were Tim was running some numbers and about 35% of our trailing 12-month clients are on that comprehensive, like more robust Aptis care and the rest have been able to graduate to that Aptis care limited, that lower amount of 93 a month. You've talked about this three steps of there's an upfront financial plan, then you get into the ongoing level with Aptis care, then you've got an annual review. So I'd like to understand just what happens with each of these. I'm getting started like Sarah Catherine heard about the business. This sounds really cool. Sign me up for Aptis. I want to become a client. Like I'm ready to go. What happens? What happens when I actually start down the process of I'm becoming an Aptis client? First of all, like every financial planner out there, uh, we start gathering data. That's really important. And the way we gather data is we have them share through ShareFile, share their statements and get an understanding of their assets or in, in our cases, we work with young physicians, their negative assets. And, or the um, debt, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, which is another, I hope we can talk about our clientele because I really just think for anybody wanting to go into advice only like this, there is a huge unmet need. But yeah, so we do a lot of this data gathering. We have a spreadsheet that we have clients fill out. I mean, it's not fancy. It is not high tech, but we do our own modeling. So this is the spreadsheet that we plug into our model. And so clients do a very extensive kind of scrub of their finances. And I love the reactions that clients have to this process. I mean, it's very, very intensive for them, but they come out of this saying, wow, 
I didn't know I spent that on <laughs> all these different memberships and subscriptions. And so it's really a, a very healthy process, I think, for them, because we really want the details and basically what's going to end up being their cash flow management system. So I want to make sure I understand the pieces here. So sure. I'm signing up. I get an email from you that says, like, here's our share file upload your statements and the balances and student loan information, if that's their contacts, right? That's the like, upload all the documents. Then they also get a spreadsheet to fill out, which it sounds like is very cash flow oriented. Like, where's your spending going? Where's your money going? Go track it and figure out where your dollars are going. That's the focus of the spreadsheet. That is. So yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry, I did leave out. Like, so we have that welcome to Aptus email that explains, also it sets the expectations. Like we really want people to understand what we do and what we don't do. So we're very clear about what this relationship is going to look like and what to expect. And then we do request this information. We have the spending areas, like what are you currently spending? But we also have an area, like a dreaming area. We want to know what are your goals? What do you want with your money in the next? What's your top priority? Do you want to retire? So this is where we learn about our clients and where they're really passionate about money. We don't want to assume that what we want is what the client wants. So we, we really get that captured high up in that Excel spreadsheet and then secondary and third goals. And then we have a section on how much car they have or plan to buy, how much house they have, how much house they want to buy. So we want to get a real understanding of what they're wanting kind of lifestyle wise on some of the big ticket items. And then we have an income section. We really want to understand their income. I mean, especially with physicians, it's really, really challenging. Sometimes physicians don't even know what they're making, right? So, you know, they could be making, they could say they're making 250000 And then in the first meeting, we find out, oh, but you get a $300,000 bonus every year. That should probably go in here. Minor so. <laughs> details. Well, you know, <laughs> bonuses don't count in compensation. As anybody who's found when you ever hire someone, you offer this comp and this bonus and people just ignore the bonus and only look at whatever the salary is. Yeah. We, we could probably do some consulting after doing this with uh, physician practices, but, but yeah, so we, we make sure that we really understand what benefits are available to them. So what are they using? What are they not using? Are they uh, contemplating a high deductible healthcare plan? What HSA is available to you for an HSA retirement savings strategy? So we make sure that we really, really understand everything available. You know, physicians a lot of times have those non-qualified deferred comp plans that they can save into. We want all the details. We want to know what the um, what the distribution uh, would look like in those. So, so we spend a lot of time on compensation and benefits, and uh, and and really asking them, okay, can we see this? Can we see this? Can we see this? Depending on what goes into that that section, and and then we want to see the pay stubs because a lot of times, again, we'll have people that are saving into plans that they don't even know they're saving into um, because they had just kind of signed up and forgotten. And so then we get to my favorite piece that I think is the most life-changing piece, and that is the actual budget. And this is where we do the expense review, um, where we make sure that we've accounted for bills, we've accounted for spending. But what, what always gets our clients is those like 
near and intermediate term expenses, like those big one-time things, yep. we force those suckers out. I mean, we are not letting those go. Like if you're going to do a remodel that's going to cost $75,000, it turns out that's actual money that you had 75,000, you spent it on a remodel and now you don't have it. Like, it's so funny. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's some spending that people don't consider as actual spending and we do. So this is where we can uh, have some funny moments with clients and really tease out those kind of one-time purchases. You know, a lot of times we'll say how much we spend on a car and they're like, well, my car's paid off. And you're like, oh, fantastic. So you drive a 20 year old car, you're never going to buy one again. So we're able to kind of, again, tease out, okay, so what are you likely to buy? And so we try to get all of this out in that initial spreadsheet. And of course, it's never right, but we do our best to kind of prompt clients to, to do it well. And then in that first meeting, it's a grueling two-hour meeting. I mean, it is incredible for the client and the planner. It's an incredible experience because you're really going through all, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, everybody who's done this first meeting knows what I'm talking about. Like it's really where you get to know the client and you get to go through these numbers and get them right. And yeah. it's kind of that kind of iterative process. So I was going to ask like when we go from sort of the data gathering spreadsheet to the meeting itself, because you were talking about like you sort of <laughs> drilling clients on like, oh, okay, but like, let's get into those, those intermittent expenses. You're not thinking about like, cool, you spend nothing on a car, but are you going to have a new one at some point? Like, when's that one going to die? And like, oh, that remodel counts. So I'm assuming that comes in like the first planning meeting conversation where you're going through the sheet, not there. You're not like, guiding them on the sheet while they're filling it out. In the Fair data. enough. Okay. It, there's, it's somewhere between. So the sheet is really okay. good at about like kind of teasing out these things. And then we are able to catch the little 75,000 remodel typically comes out. Little, the first meeting. little, little <laughs> stuff. Yeah. That little thing. <laughs> so, yeah. So then the first meeting, you know, but in preparation of the first meeting, the planner does take the data sheet is what we call it. And, uh, brings it into our model. This model was literally built from scratch. It is a work of art that Tim created, but it really is kind of pasted in. And then there's going to be, the planner has to spend some time ahead of that first meeting, making sure that we have our state tax assumptions correct. You know, that we have a lot of pieces of the model. Maybe they put that they make, um, $100,000 a pay period. And they meant it was $100,000 a year or something, you know, so right. there's a lot of kind of manual fixes to make, to kind of have the model itself in a working form. If they've got 529 assumptions, like college savings assumptions, we make sure that depending on the kids ages that we drop those expenses we drop the kid expenses at the right time and then add in the college. So it's a, it's, there is some manual work that has to be done, um, you know, getting the home amortization right so that our long-term retirement projections are working. But I would say it's probably no more than, you know, the, the model itself. I mean, we estimate a good, gosh, I don't know, like, probably four to six hours just in prep time, if not more, 
just going into that first meeting, but the Excel piece is probably not more than an hour or two. Okay. And so all this is built around just a spreadsheet model that you guys use. Yes. And then it, and then we have like a planning report that we've created that the relevant pieces in the model that we want the client to take action on or to understand, we have it so that we can take those pieces out of the model and put it into the financial planning report. Okay. And and so then I got to ask, like, why not some of the other financial planning software that's out Great there? Great question, because that would have been a lot are, easier. I just, I hear there are some other software tools that require <laughs> slightly yeah. less personal software maintenance. <laughs> it's not that it hasn't occurred to us. It's just that they don't work for us. So think about our clientele. They're in asset accumulation phase. They're not going into retirement. So the average age is closer to early 30s. And it, our cash management system, we just don't say budgeting because no one likes the B word, right? right so we right, use right. cash management system. So it's built on that. It drives everything. So we were sitting here testing out all these and I, I won't use names, but I mean, a lot of different software programs and the budget or cash management system was kind of like extra. Mm. But ours drives the model, if that makes sense. Ever, I mean, we spend the most time on helping our clients set up cash management systems. That's everything. Our clients end up with really incredible savings rates, 20, 25%, 30% for many of our physicians so that they can retire on time or early. And so it's the cash management system. And until we can see software really arrive at that, where the planning and the projections are driven from granular data like that, we, we're kind of stuck with this system, but it works. You know, I mean, as you know, the financial model and the financial plan are such a small piece of this. Right. The real financial planning is the implementation. It's the brain science. It's the behavioral science. It's the it's like how do you get your clients to take action? That is 90% of what you're doing as a financial planner. So for us, we just had never really worried so much you know, the model works well, we're able to get the granularity we need. Like if a client is saying, I'm about to move to San Francisco, can I afford a $2 million house? Well, we don't have to say yes or no, we plug it in the model and the model speaks for itself, right? Right. So so what else happens in this first planning meeting? It sounds like the, the thrust is you're going just through every line item of the spreadsheet you're doing what we do as planners of like, so tell me more about this number and like, can, let's talk about this number, right? The whole like, cool, you really have nothing budgeted for cars for the rest of your life because your current one is paid off. Like, I get it. Kudos for paying you off. But like, really? Not a single other car you're going to need for the rest of your life. So you're challenging them on that. And since you're very cash flow intensive, they're just there's a lot of line items of the budget and their spending and how their spending is evolving over time that that you talk about. So is that the meeting or what what else comes through in this planning meeting? Yeah, and and 
I don't want to overlook the most important, which is the client really being able to kind of flesh out those goals. We never want to assume that we know what's right for the client. And so it's really important that the client be able to say, it's very important that I retire by the time I'm 55. And if you have a married couple, we know because we do budgets with married couples and they're vastly different, right? So like in my marriage, I'm the spender in my marriage. My husband is the saver, the natural saver. And the cash management system is where we meet. But the goal setting is where we agree on the terms in the first place. If we don't have general like agreement that we're all going towards the same thing, that cash management system will never work because I mean, we have clients who come. So we love clients that are coming to us right out of training where they're going from making 60 or $70,000 a year to 400, 500,000, a million a year, because we get to set these things up while this is still monopoly money. Sometimes we'll get the person, the couple that's making a million dollars a year and they've been out of training for a year and they're already living paycheck to paycheck. And so in those plans, if you don't have both spouses on board saying, yeah, I guess we need to downsize this house. You know, we bought it last year, but there's no way we can afford it and live the life that we want to live and save the way we want to save. When there are easy financial plans, planning processes that we can do, and those typically happen on the what we call kind of the transitions, people who are in those significant transitions. But we know that there are going to be some tough ones. And so the goal setting is really, really critical where we make sure everybody is on the same page on the goal. And so when we do get to those tense moments, we can go back and say, okay, we really want to make sure that one or both of you are really on pace to retire. Or can we get back on track here? So it, it really becomes important to have done that process with them. So what... What happens? Like, what's the outcome of this two-hour meeting? Like, how how does it finish? We have a model. We have a working model. So we actually have the model in front of the client, and um, all of our clients are, are all of our um, all of our meetings are done over Zoom. So even if we have a rare like local, most of our clients are obviously not local. I think we're in forty-five states at this point, so everything's over Zoom. And, uh, and so we, uh, we have the model up and so our clients are able to see, you know, okay, uh, we know that in order to retire, we probably need to be closer to a 25% savings rate. And we started this meeting with expenses as they are, or as, as we planned them to be, and we're at a 20% rate. So we go through this iterative process until we can get them to, the happy medium that they feel like everyone feels good about that gets their, you know, saving enough to that our projections show that they should statistically be able to retire and then what their lifestyle that they're signing up would be. And we send a draft report after that first meeting that not only has like, here's your balance sheet, here's your income statement, here's your projected income statement, Here's the cash management system. Here's what we want you to do to start implementing that cash management system. So we go really heavily into how to adopt our cash management system that we recommend. 
And so it's all kind of laid out there. So we've spoken through it. They now can read through it. And then we, uh, the first page of every plan is the action items that we've already identified in that first meeting. Like you don't have a will. We know that you're going to need to set up a brokerage account for our meeting too. So go ahead and start the process of setting that up. Here's how to do it. So we have kind of these like to-dos for our clients ahead of that second meeting. Okay. And so then how long, so how long until the second planning meeting? Typically about a month. Okay. And, and what happens in between the first and the second meeting? So it can vary by the client, but we're really trying to get set up for the second meeting, which is really going to address the investments. So any data we are lacking, like let's say they weren't able to give us their, um, their new 403B uh, and the match and all of that. So this is where we can like really tighten up things that we didn't have. And so th- those will be on the to-do list. Um, like I said, opening up any accounts like 529s, anything that we've identified that needs to be open so that we can hit that savings rate and those goals. We want to get those accounts set up so that they're ready to go by the second meeting. Um, but, but notably in this context now relative to most other advisors, you operate on an advice only basis. Like you're not setting up these accounts because they're not opening them with you. They're setting them up wherever they want to hold their investment accounts. Right. So imagine how much harder that is. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) like, it's like, I can't do the, like, at least in, at least in, in, uh, an AUM where I'm like, yeah, we have a team. We set up all the paperwork. You'll get a DocuSign envelope and you'll just have to click like 47 times and type in your social security number again 11 times. Uh, but then we're through. So yep, you, that is you, not you, how this works. you can't do that for them. <laughs> no. And and that's when, when I said we have a very clear agreement about what we do and we don't do. Uh, when we do our interview process, we make sure clients understand that They are doing this. We call this guided DIY. I mean, they are doing it. They are going to hit trade on their own funds. Like they know what they're getting into and we do expect them to follow through. So we, you know, we want to set our clients up for success. And so we have expectations that, you know, we're going to get these things set up. Now, if it's not set up by the second meeting, it's fine. I mean, but, but we do, our clients do feel very, very motivated um, because they know that we will guide them through to the, to the finish line. And I think that we do a good enough job now interviewing where we can get the clients that are motivated, that really are committed to this process. So it is harder um, because as you know, like uh, we can, we can operate with any brokerage account. So we largely advise people to open Vanguard, Schwab, or Fidelity accounts. Um, We have the most familiarity with those funds, with how those accounts work. So we really hope that clients will use those accounts, and most of our clients do. Okay. Or in their state 529 plans. Okay. So so in between meetings, they're they're doing their to-dos largely to get ready to get their investment house in order. So we're we're opening 529s and brokerages and IRAs. We're getting on the follow-on info from their 401k or probably usually 403b because uh, uh, of the positions. And so you're you're getting all of that in place so that you can talk more directly about investments. 
So then take me through what happens in the second meeting in practice. Yeah. So the second meeting is really about kind of that tax efficiency and investing and and automation. I would say those are our three main tenets is, you know, how do we make the smartest tax strategies with investing? And then what are the best, what are the available investment buckets that you already have and that we've additionally created? How much can we fund into those things? And so if you think about like the um, the retirement plans, I mean, I have this we have, I, I run a retirement plan where they have access, where physicians can put up to $88,000 in tax sheltered money. It's incredible. Um, so we, uh, we put, you know, we, we go through those and why they're so important. Um, mega backdoor Roths when they're available, a lot of physicians have access to these mega backdoor Roths, um, HSA strategy brokerage. So we, we go through this kind of tax efficient waterfall, if you will, where, you know, we're trying to give dollars the biggest bang for the buck that you can uh, from a tax perspective, or in the case of like student loans, the best student loan strategy. And we consider student loans to be like an investment strategy, right? So if you can have the smartest student loan strategy, uh, we consider that kind of part of that, what we call pay yourself first, uh, you know, that savings rate, that 20, 25, 30% savings rate, student loan payments for us go into that savings rate because once the student loans are paid off or forgiven in the case of physicians getting public service loan forgiveness, then presumably those payments would circle back into their brokerage accounts towards retirement. So the, so the tax management and then <clears throat> the investment and, and investment buckets, if you will. And then, <coughs> excuse me, the investments themselves, you know, we teach our clients, we teach them how to invest. So <clears throat> we teach them about um, capturing average market returns in the most efficient way possible, averaging in. And we have our clients take obviously a risk tolerance test. That's one of the, I didn't add that. That's part of our data sheet as clients take a risk tolerance test. And uh, we walk through investments themselves, help them understand them, help them understand the principles of asset allocation, largely driven for us by age um, and, and, and to some degree risk tolerance if we th see some major aberrations. Um, and, then, uh, and then from there, we uh, literally teach them how to do it. We teach them how to, uh, you know, get the ticker symbol, um, make the trade. And I told you the third tenet of this second meeting is automation. So everything we do, we try to automate. So if, if we have a client that in order to hit their 25% savings rate, they need to put $2,000 a month into a brokerage account, uh, we don't just have them put $2,000 and invest it accordingly to their asset allocation and then the three or four funds are having them put them in. Uh, We're actually having them use mutual funds so that they can automate those monthly contributions. And so then they, they essentially don't have to think about it. Once they set it up, they can just let it roll until our next meeting. And so 
does this bring close well it's i guess two questions um does this bring closure or planning process and then like where do we what do we finish with at the end of this two meeting the at the end of the second meeting yeah, it's done. I mean, it's 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 we've got a financial plan by the second meeting. We know exactly what their cash management system is. We have them implementing our cash management system. And and I'm happy to talk about our cash management system. It is um it it's really inspired by that first step cash management system. I just love it kind of um having squirrel funds and and uh Yeah, you know, can you can you explain this for folks who aren't familiar with First step cash management. Sure, sure, and we don't use the exact system, but I learned it early in my practice, going to an FPA conference or retreat, and uh, just really, really fell in love with the simplicity of it. And I think it's so effective for people who make thirty thousand or people who make three hundred thousand. So this is the system we teach to people: is we just have people on those. Uh, you know, you pay yourself first into your retirement. So that's that 20, 25, 30% savings rate that goes into the tax efficient waterfall that I discussed. So that's our first step of the cash management system. And then you have your paycheck that comes in. And so the second step of the cash management system is you set aside money for future expenses. And so many times that's an emergency fund, uh, setting money into a health savings account, not your HSA, but if you have an HSA retirement strategy, making sure that you're putting money aside in case you hit your healthcare deductible. And so you just have a pile of cash there to do that. Um, saving for home repair reserve. We have people save 1% of the value of their home divided by 12 um, in a monthly contribution. So we'll have people set up, you know, seven or eight savings accounts. I personally have seven. And again, automation. Well, across is all, all these. So my emergency fund, my home repair reserve. Mm-hmm. All, all my, you know, excess uh, medical expenses uh, uh, account, like all these are are different little earmarked savings accounts that you automate transfers for. That's right. Gift account, a clothing account. I mean, just some of our clients have technology accounts, um, like 529 would be another account, even though it's not a savings account, we would consider that part of that step too. So that money is all automated. And so we have clients that might have it all, the money shoots out on the second of every month, or they'll have it kind of spread out through the month if they have like a tighter budget. And then, um, and then the, the last step of the, um, kind of the last like two phases of the cash management system is you, you know, pay your bills. And so we want people to automate their bills. We want bills to be, largely uh, the same on a monthly basis. So we have people, you know, levelize their utilities. Like we really need that consistency so that people can save the way we want them to on a monthly basis, pay themselves first and not run out of money essentially. And then, uh, and then, you know, of course, then there's my favorite part of the cash management system is where you just spend everything up, you know, like you get to spend your account to zero. It's amazing. And we have lots oh, of clients be- that love it. You just because spend it to zero. Because that's what's left. Like if I, if I did the whole pay myself first with savings into the investment retirement account goals, then I paid myself first again, pay myself second for all the future expenses, right? The emergency fund, the home repair reserve, the gift account, the clothing account, the technology account, the 529 account. Then I've paid all my core bills that I have to pay. Almost by definition, everything left is not just discretionary spending, but 
we literally satisfied all the goals and all the future needs and all the current needs. So guilt-free, whatever's left. So sad. Don't you just love doing things to completion? I sure uh-huh. do. I love spending that sucker to zero. Very cool. So, uh, and so that's the, that's the system you teach your clients as well as they're going Every through client. building these layers. Yeah. And so it's a really, those squirrel accounts, I mean, that is just a, a very, very important piece of the process. Um, because, you know, if we didn't have that, I think that that's where clients get in trouble. That's where doctors get in trouble is maybe they, uh, they'll, they'll have a brokerage account, they'll be funding it. And then those one-time items, I mean, we have physicians that spend $50,000 a year on vacations, right? I mean, that's not the norm, but that's, but I mean, that's great. I mean, especially for physicians who make 800 to a million, 800,000 to a million. I mean, like, that's a great budget. We fully support it. But, you know, if you don't account for it, you're going to have a perception that your savings rate is a lot higher. And then you're going to constantly be robbing that brokerage account. And when we look at that brokerage account, we, we, we don't expect to spend it. That is not spendable money. That is retirement money. And so I think that that uh, does a really good job. Saying that those squirrel funds is really, really important so that our clients don't play. You know, people play tricks with money. I mean, I do. I'm so good at tricking myself with money. And, um, and, and yeah, we know money is fungible. We know that. But our brains love mental accounting. And so, uh, and so this really works well with the human brain and behavior with mental accounting to say, no, 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 it's all accounted for. It's all here. Here's your actual savings rate. So, so you get to the end of this process. What, I guess it's like, what comes at the end? Like just how, how does this wrap up? Yeah, so they get their their full report now. So it's the finalized model because typically, like clients will come back and say, "Oh, I checked this number. I don't spend a hundred on this. I spend five hundred on this." Whoops. So oftentimes, there's there's some there's some model adjustments in that second meeting as clients start implementing their cash management system. Uh, and and when they kind of slowly do it, really the 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 real implementation comes after the second meeting. But they get the they get the report. They have now the full to do list for the year that's prioritized by like what's the most important thing, and and you know down to the least important. But you know there are some. <laughs> so we have a couple of financial planners that could have like thirty things on the to do list. I mean, like some of these things, some of these get real detailed. Um, so they get this report. It has also their investment policy statement. Like we, we make sure that people really understand why, how and why you're investing. Like, how is this working? Like, what are you committing to, to not selling? You know, you're committing to the long haul. So we have all so these even, kinds of. Mm-hmm. Even though you're not managing the portfolio directly, you're still creating an investment policy statement with them, like with them for them. Oh, yes. Not, I mean. Not for you at that point. Yeah, it is. So we are, we are treated and we treat ourselves as if we are investing their money. So we, we take all of, we have all the compliance. We have everything that you would have as if we were making the trades. So, uh, so our clients are getting actual investment advice from us. We are just simply not holding their assets. Okay. 
and not charging that way because it's Correct. covered under the flat fee. Correct. Okay. So yeah, they get their report and then that's where the work really starts. And, uh, and, and, and so we've got their rank to do list in that first year, you know, we, we want pretty much most of our clients, like we really want them to be on our app disc care, that 187 a month. And, uh, and that's where, I mean, we're checking in every couple of months. Um, you know, we've got emails, calls, Zoom meetings, you know, could be s- several hours of time of a planner's time on just, have you gotten this done? Just checking in. Um, oh yeah, I was having some trouble with uh, this Vanguard uh, account. Oh, okay. Well, here's how I would troubleshoot that. So we, we really make sure that things don't drop. And, and so that we get this whole plan implemented over the course of a year. You know, you learn as a financial planner, I'm sure every financial planner goes through this. You think that, oh, your client is like really motivated. Here's your financial plan. You're welcome. And that's just not how it works, right? Like you hand them a financial plan and they probably don't read it. Let's be honest. Um, but, you know, if they read it or not, it doesn't matter. Like we know what the plan is the financial plan is really good for our planners. Like it's really good for us to always be, um, always remember always, because you, we got a high volume of clients. Like it's really important for the planner to constantly be refreshing on where we're going on this financial plan. And then uh, we have our to-do list just in Excel. We have little check marks that we put, um, that the planner puts when they do a little check-in call or an email and find out that, yep, the will was was, uh, started. Yes. The, um, the, the investment accounts were created. We got our first deposits going in and we've taken the step to automate them done. So, uh, that's kind of what the thrust of the first year looks like. So how does this work from just, uh, like a meeting cadence and engagement perspective? So every couple of months, there's a check-in and sometimes it's appropriate for it to be an actual meeting, you know, like it could be just a half hour meeting, or it's just appropriate to say, Hey, there were these three just kind of quick bullet items. And you just, the, the planner will just send an email and ask, you know, Hey, this, this quarter, I wanted to focus on these three items. Have you been able to get those done? And so how oft, how often do these meetings or interactions occur? Yeah, so every couple of months, I mean, it, at least. We really drive this by what our clients need, but, you know, it definitely takes a few hours at least of planner, like dedicated planner time just to nudge our clients to take action. We do not want to show up to that first, you know, annual review and the client isn't any further along in their financial planning process. So that's what, that's what these check-ins really are meant to do. And how do you just track and manage them internally? Yeah. Like vision, there's a lot of like yes. exactly which things are which clients working on Correct. and relative to some people that track it in planning software, you don't track it in planning software. Well, you'll be very proud of us. We do use Wealthbox and okay. we use that very effectively. We have we have found that that is a very, very effective planning tool all around from making sure that we're checking every compliance box, making sure that <clears throat> we have updated contact information. And then that's also where we can kind of load the, just have an email exchange 
or just had a meeting and then we'll log that in there. And so you can see, you know, oh gosh, I haven't been able to get a hold of this client. I really need up the effort if you see one kind of slipping away. So now help us understand the the clients. Like who are you serving and where do these large number of people come from who will pay for all these advice services to implement it themselves. I think the lay I like the label you'd use of like guided DIY clients. So who are these folks and where do they come from that you get so many of them to serve? I don't know. Like it's funny. I, I do know, but it is remarkable just starting this company in 2011 and where the industry is in 2023. It's like it, it might as well be three decades away. There's so much change. When I was charging that 45 bucks an hour, it was wild. I had intended to work with just, I, I really only wanted to work with people who are like median income, right? So it's important for you to understand the why, like why I did that. Um, in 07, 08, I had just started a career. I'd gone to, I'd gotten my master's degree from Harvard and I was coming back to Arkansas because I wanted to work. I wanted to be a sell-side stock analyst. And my partner was my boss at the time. And keep in mind that I started that career in picking stocks in 07. Yeah. Oh, nice timing. Nice timing. Yes. But guess where I lived before I went to Harvard? I lived in Arizona. Now, imagine my experience living in Arizona from 2002 to 2005. Uh, so nice, would, nice time for real estate. Yes. You would have broker. I thought it was totally normal that you'd be going to your car and a mortgage broker would come and greet you and ask if you wanted to buy a $200,000 <laughs> house. Now, at the time, I was serving the homeless as a, in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, so not making quite a lot of money, but definitely told I could buy a $200,000 or more house. So I knew people buying these houses. I almost bought a house and my dad uh, told me I was crazy and I needed to get back home to Arkansas, but I almost bought one and I, and I had a lot of friends, unfortunately, that bought them. So here I am sitting in an office trying to be a good stock picker. We know how that's going. And then all of my friends who had bought those houses are literally financially devastated. And I thought about all those brokers who could just sell you the mortgage and then pass it along. And they had absolutely zero interest in whether it was a good idea or a bad idea. Whether they thought it was a good idea or a bad idea, they had no investment in it. And so that was really where the seeds of this idea came from is like, what if I had a place where people could go pay a modest fee and be able to determine if they should buy this house or not? That was it. That was kind of, that was literally like the whole concept. I was not a financial planner, right? I mean, I was going towards my CFA, like I wanted to be in investments. So there, I had zero grounding in financial planning. I just had this desire to just open a business where someone could get just unbiased advice. Someone who wasn't going to go sell that mortgage down and would give you the fair opinion. So that is how this all started. But what ended up happening is everyone that was hiring me was a rich doctor. <laughs> right. And that's because all these doctors go into training and then they come out and they're like, 
getting approached by insurance brokers, right? I mean, yeah. they're getting the the steak dinners and all this stuff. I mean, these these guys can also get the match list going into residencies. They have their emails, like they're just hounding them. And there's this like growing knowledge because there's been so many generations that have been plagued by this that I think that there's this like, I just started this company right around the time where doctors were starting to say, maybe those things aren't so good for us, but we need a financial planner because we've gone from making $70,000 to $500,000 a year. And so that is how I put a shingle out and suddenly instead of like the nurse or the firefighter that I thought I was going to be working with, I've got a bunch of white coats asking me for for help. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, it really showed me that there is this huge gap because these doctors largely have negative net worth. You know, it's funny, they go to the AUM industry and they say, Hey, can you help me? And sometimes they'll take them on a pro bono basis or whatever. But a lot of times they say, come back when you have 500,000. And I always joke, it's like, I'm a, I, I like to run half marathons. I'm training for my first marathon in December. And it would be like, you know, telling someone, I want to be your marathon coach. I'll meet you at mile 26, right? <laughs> so for these physicians coming out of training, they need help now. And I know they need help now because I know if they don't get help in that transition, they're just going to, if they don't hit their savings rate, which is hard to do because you can't just go max out a retirement plan, right? Like you had to work to hit a 20 or 25% savings rate, which is what most of them need to be saving at minimum. I mean, if they don't hit that, they will absolutely max out their $22,500 retirement plan when they should be saving a hundred thousand a year. They're going to live on that extra, that 75 plus, And then they're going to find themselves 15 years down the road, severely undersaving. They're going to have some money for someone to manage, but they're going to be vastly underprepared for retirement. So I think that this particular niche is perfect for advice only. So I hear you sort of on, on paper on the opportunity. How do you actually get hundreds of them to, to come to you to the point that as you said, like you've got these advisors who don't have to go prospect and find young doctor clients. Sounds like the the firm is finding them. So how is the firm finding all these clients? Yeah. So I will say that um, we, there was some luck involved. So um, when we first, uh, when I first started the business, it was 2011. And one of those first, you know, initial clients paying me 45 bucks an hour I'll never forget when he handed me a book and he's like, you got to read this book. This guy, he's saying all the same things you're saying. And I was like, no, no, no. I've read those all. Like this, this guy's selling gold. He's selling something. And he's like, no, 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 no. I promise you read this for me. So I read the book and it's called The White Coat Investor. It's a self-published book by this little known at the time, just kind of, I think he would be fine if I called him like a nerdy financial blogger. And I read the book. I couldn't put it down. I, and I did the first thing. I've never done this before. I contacted him. And I said, oh, my God, I just read your book. 
every single physician should read this book. This is phenomenal. And he wrote back and he said, well, you're the first financial planner that hasn't chastised me for writing this book. And so he, so he asked me more about myself and I told him Be, I- Because his, just for those who know, because White Coat Investor is pretty negative on AUM advisors in particular, like it's well, both sales-oriented advisors and the AUM model. Yeah, mostly he's it's it's on the brokerage model. I mean, I think that, I don't think- you're right. I think in the book, he's really like, I wish there were people that would just charge a flat fee. Like he kind of talks about that. But I think that over time, like he's really understood too, though, that there is a role to play. And we do too. I am not anti-AUM. I mean, I think we need it. We refer people to AUM that aren't right fits. It reminds me, I mean, it's it's a version of what we, I think, have long talked about in the industry, the 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 opportunities of building referral relationships with centers of influence, just our industry almost always treats centers of influence as, you know, the, the estate planning attorney, the CPA who has a lot of tax and business clients that can refer you small business owners. Uh, And to me, just, you know, if you're, if you're, if your niche that you're going after is young physicians, well, your ideal center of influence is the leading blogger for young physicians. So, yeah, and that's and who you got a relationship and, with? And, but we didn't know. I mean, I didn't know. Yeah, I had no idea yeah. that he would get so big. I mean, like, you know, so so and and there's and to be fair, you know, that's not all of our uh, that's not our entire referral system. So. Um, you know, if you do a great job in financial planning, they're going to, people are going to tell their friends about it. Like, so, uh, so I would say that we get a huge amount, maybe half of our business comes from just direct referrals from other clients. The other thing that the flywheel is going, it, it, it can, it can keep amplifying itself. the, The proverbial snowball rolling down the hill. And then the other thing I do, and uh, and and this is really phenomenal, is I speak to GME programs, so graduate medical education, residents, interns, and fellows across the country. So, uh, so I just spoke to Kaiser Permanente on Monday. Um, I'm I've spoken to you know Wake Forest, to UAMS, to a Cleveland Clinic. I mean, like all over the country. And, uh, and just on these basic principles that doctors need, like how to manage their student loans, like, so very high level, uh, sessions. And, and some of these, like in the case of Kaiser Permanente, that is a full day. So, so speaking for an entire day and just going topic after topic, spent going deep, deep, deep into them. It's like very much a workshop. I have them build an entire financial plan for themselves in a day. And so I think that there is an opportunity too, where we can really serve education. And it's not like, oh, I'm going to come in here and tell you all the crazy jargon that's in this world. And guess what? Congratulations. I'm here to, to manage your money. I don't, I don't think they want that. And so what's beautiful about, in, about our model is that you know, I don't sell at all. I, oftentimes, I don't even say the name of my company. But uh, but people remember, wow, like you came in and you taught me literally how to do these things. I was able to go and execute on what you said. You didn't sell me anything. You weren't salesy. You didn't you know, make any money off any of your recommendations. And so, you know, I trusted I trust you and I'm going to do the work to figure out who you were uh, when it's time for me to get out of training and build my first financial plan. So 
you know, it's not a huge, like that would not supply our, as much speaking as I do, that would not fill our business. But I do think it's a nice enhancement and it's a great community thing um, to, to be able to offer that. So what surprised you the most about this path of building and especially scaling up an advice only business? You know, again, it's it's one thing when you do this to like generate enough clients to pay yourself. It's a whole other thing when you've got seven other planner mouths to feed and you're closing in on two million dollars of revenue. So what what surprised you the most about what it takes to actually build and scale in this model? Well, it is not for the faint of heart. That is for sure. Um, this, uh, the way I would describe it is, you know, initially when it was my partner and me, and we were just kind of feeding ourselves, and then we were helping people, but then a lot more people wanted help. And I, I mean, I kind of remember this conversation. He remembers this as a series of kind of check-ins over time, but. I remember where there was in my head kind of this moment where we were like, is this just a lifestyle business where we're just going to make a ton of money? Because you can make so much money if you just have a solo practice. And I think that's why a lot of people don't scale. Or we can sign up to have uncertainty, headache, and likely be broke on the other end if we try to help all these people that want help and grow the business. And so, of course, naturally, we chose the latter and, uh, and, and did decide. And then we did move into a multi-year. And for any Catholics out there, it's purgatory. There's just no other way to describe it. I mean, you're wearing every hat. You're doing compliance. You're doing... Uh, you know, the, just all of it, all of it, you're doing the billing, you're doing the health insurance. I mean, like, it's just awful. I mean it. And then you're like, you know, you're the, the way the referrals were coming in, you know, we'd be like choking on referrals for three months and then we'd have three months where we might get like 10. <laughs> That's an yeah. exaggeration, but but I mean, it's you're just feast and then you're like, well, do we hire? And then you go into this famine and you're like, oh my God, what if we can't feed all our mouths? Um, it is, it is, it is, it has been tremendously hard, but, but we have gotten, I think that we can, and, and I checked with Tim before coming on this podcast to see if we can actually say this, but I think we can actually say we are now officially through the purgatory. Um, we, uh, like make sure you're not jinxing anything by saying it in public. (laughs) Yes. We are at a point now where we don't worry about client flow at all. Um, we are just worried about where we're going to get our next financial planner. That's it. That's our biggest, that's what keeps us up at night is how do we maintain this high level of talent that we have and that clients expect? Well, I think that's an interesting shift in just truly like where where you are in the business when that mental mindset and and shift goes from I'm not worried about where my next client comes from I've got a pretty strong sustaining uh system for bringing clients in now my worry is uh where do I find the next planner to make sure I can continue to serve all these clients on a on a healthy basis going forward that's right. And the timing, you know, like 
you get these fake out moments where, you know, we don't get one client a day. We get like five clients a day. And then you say, oh my God, is that the pace? Do we hire right now? And then, so it's, it's, we're always going to have, like, we don't worry about where the next client's going to come from, but the timing is what's tricky. And, uh, and I think that Tim has got this down to a science where we can kind of look at how far out our, our planners are booked. And when we see it at that point, like, okay, everybody's really booked out three to four months. Like it's time to bring another one on. That's sort of your measure of capacity and backlog. And I I guess almost by definition, uh, uh, if they're booked three to four months out, like you do literally have a flow of clients who have already committed to say, yes, come on board and there's revenue coming. So you're not, you're not really at risk for, oh my gosh, what happens if I hire them to bring them on board? And then there's just no clients. Like there's, you always have to worry in the long run. Like you, there's a flow already underway by the time you're pulling the trigger. There is. Much make, and we makes just... it easier to pull the, pull the trigger. I, I know where the paycheck's coming covered, at least initially. That's exactly right. I mean, Tim and I, like, this is a thrilling entrepreneurship kind of experience in building that financial planning practice, for sure. And we have taken personal risks. I just, anybody who can relate to this, and I I know you have young children, I've got young children, and I started the business and then I had my first child. There was a point where I had $400 in planning revenue coming in a month and I was paying $2,300 in daycare for my three children under five. Oh, that's always fun. That's always fun math to do about working. Yeah. So anybody out there that's in that thing, what I can say is, is stick with it, right? Like just stay with it. Find a way to live way below your means. Find a way to live if you're married on your spouse's income. Get to a position where you don't have to make money if you're trying to do something this risky and just stick with it. Don't cut corners. Stick with it. Because I do think that you know, everyone talks about this hockey stick. I don't see a hockey stick. I think that this industry, from my perspective of scaling an advice-only firm, is who can last the longest to build. Mm. Because I do think the demand is there. I think that people still don't know what flat fee or advice-only is. I don't think they know it's an option. But now that it's growing, I think the pie is just going to get bigger of this, of these young millennials wanting to do things. This goes with their personality, right? Like they they want, and I say young millennial, I am a 43-year-old. I'm the first of the millennials. So it's this group that's like, yeah, I want to do this on my own. And I think that the pie is going to grow, um, but you're going to have to stay in business long enough to get access to that pie. So we took incredible personal risks that we had no idea would pay off. And what we have done is said, we are going to focus on what's right for the client and what's right for the planner and really not what's right for the entrepreneur for a long time. Right. But that's what made the business work. And so now that we've gotten through the purgatory, we are benefiting from this, from having taken those risks that were very, very significant, I would say. 
So what was the low point for you on this journey? <laughs> oh, God. Where I was crying in the bathroom, trying to find an attorney for how to unwind a business. Is that, do you think that, would that be a low point? <laughs> That's how bad it got. When just everything compounds where it's like, right. there's not enough clients or we had a planner that we brought in that wasn't a good fit. You know, like just when the world just comes crying, like we thought we had won this retirement plan and then they pulled the RFP and we had already been kind of going towards it. It's just everything can just go wrong. <laughs> so, so yeah. wrong um, in those early years. And now we're at a place where, yeah, things can go wrong, but we have so much that's like working and going right. I mean, where's all the wood I can knock on that, you know, we feel like we can weather the storms a lot easier, but I mean, there were some tough moments, tough moments. So what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 10 plus years ago as you were getting started? Thank you. <laughs> thank you for doing what was right for the client. Like, thank you for sticking with it. There were many times where we actually flirted with exiting the model um, for a half a second, we were AUM managers, I think for like six months. And then we decided that is just not right. Uh, so, so I just, I'm so glad I stuck with the original principle of how do you get a fair price and a transparent fee to people who need it and can't get access to the traditional high quality financial planning industry yet? Or ever, you know, in the case of people who don't make very much money. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors getting getting started today? Uh, so I would give the same advice that I was kind of alluding to earlier is this is not if you want to go to advice only and do this, I think it is entirely possible, but it will be very, very hard. I actually am quite good personally at selling. I'm very good. I, I'm able to prospect well on retirement plans. Um, I'm very passionate about what I do and I'm able to articulate that well. Not everybody can. So I think that for people who are good at prospecting, are very passionate about this, very articulate on, you know, on speaking to people in non-jargony ways and you can make this work but have a big old pile of cash to live on, live way below your means, don't expect to make a ton of money, um, set your expectations right. If you have a spouse, make sure you're living on one income. Like this would be a very difficult line of work to start if you had like a stay-at-home spouse and mouths to feed on your own. Like that would be just a, a very, very difficult, difficult thing. But for people who are interested in financial planning that love this work and they don't want to sell, they don't want to prospect, they don't want to grow that practice on their own, join a flat fee firm. I mean, I, I be a financial planner all day. You know, you're not going to make the kind of lottery-like money that I think is available in the sales industry or to a lesser degree on the AUM side, but it's a good business. It is a very, it's a good, a very good, I mean, I think it's a good pay. Mm. Um, 
I think it's a good, I, I think, I think it's a good business to go into. So as, as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is that word success means different things to different people. Uh, sometimes even different things to us as we go through the stages of, of business and life. And so as someone who's built what I think I would objectively call a, a very successful advice only business as you close in on $2 million of revenue, the, the business is in a very good place. How do you define success for yourself at this point? That is the best question. And for me, how I define success is very, very clear because I focus on this on a daily basis. For me, it is time. It is having control of my own time. And this is something that I want my planners to have access to and that planners can can actually inspire for their clients. I don't believe that income or money is could ever be worth our time. And uh, I feel like I have my values very aligned in that. I have a family that I want to spend more time with than I want to spend in my business. And, uh, and so I have structured my life and I continuously structure my work in the business so that time is the most important commodity that I can control. And I think that this business, whether it's AUM or advice only, I think that people can make choices about their time and be able to get some of it back that you can't in traditional industries where you've got FaceTime and 40 hour weeks and all of that. So uh, that's how I define success is, can I work a six hour day? Can I be home at three and help my kids with their homework when they get off the bus? Like I consider that success is every day that I do that, which is most days. Very cool. Very cool. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.